0: Welcome to More to Come, P.W.'s uh, weekly podcast on comics and graphic novel publishing. I'm Calvin Reed, senior news editor of Publishers Weekly, uh, editor of P.W. Comics World and editor of The Fanatic, P.W.'s twice a month comics and pop culture newsletter. Check us out online at publishersweekly.com slash comics. All right. So um, it, it, it's February. Uh, you know, that's Black History Month. But as I like to tell people, uh, we do this all the time here at More to Come as well. But so, w- but we have a real treat for everyone today. Uh, we're going to talk with the creative team behind a really extraordinary work of graphic, of serious graphic nonfiction, monumental, Oscar Dunn and his radical fight in Reconstruction Louisiana, uh, an amazing uh, historical work on on really a. a to, to, refer to the book's title, Monumental, uh, Historical Figure, who I will admit, uh, uh, I knew nothing about. In any event, uh, uh welcome all of you to More to Come. Let me give you all a quick, uh, introduction. Uh, we're going to be talking with Brian K. Mitchell, uh, a, a Assistant Professor of History at the University of, of Arkansas, the, the, the author of the book, Barrington S. Edwards, uh, is a teacher of art at Massachusetts College of Art and Design, and much more. We're going to talk about that too. Uh And uh Nick Walden, uh, Associate Editor at Historic New Orleans uh, Collection, the publisher of the book. Uh, I want to welcome all of you to more to come.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us. Um uh,
0: You know, like I said, I you know, I I heard a little bit about uh, uh what's Pinchback, but I've never heard of Oscar J. Dunn until I and honestly, until I saw this book, scrolling through our, our long list of forthcoming books, just sort of looking for something, and I was like, what? Uh, uh I was impressed with the the seriousness of the research, uh, the 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 vivid, lively artwork. uh, uh and of course I wanted to know more about the publisher historic uh what is it the uh um, historic new orleans collection which i have never heard from before either so we're going to try and talk about all of that but at this point i want to jump back to the author uh to brian i can maybe you can fill us in with a little more information about yourself and uh just get let's get give us some uh, initial information about oscar dunn um
1: Okay, I'm a, I'm a native of uh, New Orleans, but I moved away as a small child, and I moved back in 1976, uh, shortly after there was a murder in my family. Someone was shot, um uh, protesting, really, so uh, we moved back home. My mother was also in nursing school, so I moved back while she was in school in Chicago, and... Uh every day I would go to school and I'd have to go somewhere after school. So I would go to my great grandmother's house. And that's where the story really begins mm-hmm. is me coming home and going home to my great grandmother and hearing stories about people. I'd look through photo albums and magazines and I came across a newspaper clipping about Dunn and I, I, I noted that Don had the same last name as my, uh, great grandmother and the same as my mother's maiden name. So with that, uh, she began telling me a little bit about, uh, this distant ancestor and his importance to the city, the state and the country. Uh, I, I would assume that everyone in Louisiana knew that at the time. I was only, uh, like I said, in second grade. So. Uh when we go back to school and we begin talking about governors and lieutenant governors and who the current governor was and who the lieutenant governor was, uh the teacher asked, Can anyone name any uh governors or lieutenant governors besides the ones that are currently in office? And I mentioned the name of Oscar Dunn, and she was totally oblivious, had no idea who Oscar Dunn was. Um uh, but I'm African American, and I told her he was an assastor. she said, well there's there's never been an african American lieutenant governor, and that just showed you how how much was missing from history and how little uh she had even been taught about uh our past and i and i i I could probably go to middle schools or high schools today in some parts of the country, mm-hmm. um even in some parts of Louisiana." and ask about Dunn or Pinchback or C.C. C. Antoine, all three men who had been lieutenant governor, and um, teachers and children would be aghast. They would have no idea that uh, these individuals actually served. Well, she dismissed me and told me, really, uh, you don't know what you're talking about. So I, I go back home and I was sad. I tell my grandmother. Is that and- the
0: point where you became a historian? <laughs> Just. <laughs>
1: It wasn't long. It was a little bit before, that, but okay. it was oh, at so that it point it that, I began, that. Okay. I began questioning everything. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I began questioning everything, and this issue doesn't come up again until I, I my mother uh comes down to New Orleans after she completes nursing school, and the doctor she worked for moved to the suburbs.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: When I say suburbs, I mean white flight suburbs. You know, nineteen seventies in nineteen. 70 suburbs, they're trying to get out of the city suburbs. And when I describe the, the suburb I grew up in, I always have to tell people, uh, David Duke was my representative to legislature. That's the kind of suburb I grew up in. Well, well, so there was little, there was little representation in my history classes or discussion. Of African Americans. And I don't think it was uh, out of animus. I I truly believe Mm -hmm. most of my teachers just did not receive that sort of training and education. So when I got to college, I decided that I wanted to learn about my past and fill in all these gaps that didn't make any sense to me. And I ran into two, my first two black historians that I personally got to know. I'd read many black historians, but I'd never known any personally. <laughs> uh, Joe Louis Caldwell, the late Joe Louis Caldwell and, uh, Dr. Raphael Casimir were the first black historians that I, I experienced and they really set the pace for me.
0: And you know, I just want to make sure that all the listeners get this. We're talking about Oscar J. Dunn, who was, who was lived with the first black lieutenant governor in, uh, uh in the U.S. As well as the first acting governor, uh, and we'll, uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about that period uh, in his life as well. Um, uh, and he was, he served in this at a, at a really an extraordinary time. I mean, this book's got it all folks. It's got, uh, you know, it's got white militias. It's got impeachment. It's got voter suppression. It's got white supremacy. Uh, and, and we're talking about 1866, 67. Um. Uh. We got a presidential election. It's, it's all there. But so we're gonna come back to you, uh, Brian, for the story of his life. But I want to jump to Barrington, and I'd love to know a little bit about, uh, you know, more about your background and how you got involved in, in, and as the artist of the project.
2: thank you, Calvin. Um. So, um, first of all, love that shirt that Howard University <laughs> shirt gotta give you a shout out My sister went in the there. House, yes, yeah, what I is- went to yeah, I went to Hampton, so we got a little beef,
0: oh, um, yeah, absolutely me but- <laughs> <Yes>, baby,
2: <laughs> I love it though. I love it, I love it, I love it. It's like just say. <laughs> I was only there for a year. But that's um uh, relevant to the story because that's kind of my foundation. I um I'm from Boston, raised in um born and raised in um Roxbury, Dorchester, Mattapan, Um but I decided I had to get out um I was feeling something happening in Boston that I needed to see a different um side of life and went to Hampton University. Got a good foundation down there and came back, became an artist. So I've been working as an artist um, and a comic book artist specifically um, as, you know, my vocation um, while I've been working as an educator as my profession for the last 20-something years. hmm and so I got involved in a project when, um, a really good friend of mine, John Jennings, who's a really yeah. prolific and amazing. Yeah, you know John, right? Say it, say it again. John Jennings. John Jennings. John Ira Jennings. John name, put some respect, Jennings, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Put some respect on his name, right? Yes. Um, shout out to Black Kirby with, um, yes, you know, the whole crew, Ronaldo. Yeah, he the man. Crew. Yeah. So that's, so I, I linked with, um, folks like that and he, I had done some work with him on a book called Box of Bones. And yeah, I think oh, yeah. He, yeah, so the issue that I illustrated had a heavy, um, historical bent to it. And I didn't, I've done some other projects that, um, reference history and he thought I'd be a good match for this project. So he kind of linked it and I, you know, talked with Nick. Oh my God. And yeah, we just conceived this thing. Like I just heard the story about, you know, Brian's ancestor. I'm like, all right, this is too coincidental. Um, from a, a nerdy educator point of view and a uh, um, really kind of active black um, artist point of view. Um, it was kind of the perfect storm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Great. All right. Uh, so Nick, uh, uh, tell us a little bit about you, you yourself and about the Historic uh, New Orleans Collection. Yeah, sure. Um,
3: well, I've been an editor at the Historic New Orleans Collection for about six years now. My background is as a magazine journalist and editor. Um, so, you know, I've always my whole career been interested in deep stories and, you know, unheard stories and kind of, you know, turning over those stones and, you know, sharing information that people are, you know, need to know and aren't familiar with. And so my, you know, the historic New Orleans collection has been publishing books for decades now. Um, and actually Monumental is just one of three books we're publishing. Right now that relates to, you know, 19th century reconstruction. Um, we've got economy hall coming up by Fatima Sheikh. We've got a book of Afro creole poetry by Clint Bruce. So, you know, we've been in this space, uh, for a while now, but especially in recent years. And so I was, um, five years where it was called historically speaking and we scrounged the archives and found stories that, you know, were different and new and um so we i i discovered brian's research um about 2016 and and this dissertation that he had written about oscar dunn and it just i mean just like you i'm sure uh, calvin when you first read this story it was like how have i never heard this story before And, and you know pretty soon after that um we had an opportunity in a local uh podcast uh wwno called tripod Uh, Brian and I went on and shared Oscar Dunn's story and, and that episode got a lot of buzz. And shortly thereafter, we started talking about making the book and kind of the rest is history.
0: Did you, was it always considered to, did you always plan it to be a graphic, uh, history?
3: That was Brian. Brian, you can talk about (laughs) that a little bit. We're going to get back. Okay. (laughs) We're
0: going to get back to Brian in a second. Okay. So. Okay. Um, yes, I, I, I just yeah, one more question. I'm curious. I mean, is the Historical New Collection, is it primarily a publisher or is it a, I mean, it sort of sounds are, like a museum almost.
3: <laughs> we are, you know, I think that probably most people would identify us as a museum first. We're a museum, research center, hmm. publisher. We're based in the French Quarter of New Orleans. Uh, been around 50 or 60 years. I should have the exact number, but um, you know, we have a campus, we have kind of a sprawling campus in the French Quarter of New Orleans where we have history galleries and rotating exhibitions, but then we also have the Research Center, which contains extensive archives covering the history of New Orleans, and uh, in fact, a lot of that information in our archives was useful in Brian's research, and also when we started putting together uh, image references for Barrington, we pulled a lot of sourcing from our archives, so illustrations, cool, a, photographs, I mean, what have you. I was
0: going to ask that question. Oh, great. Okay. Terrific. Okay. Back to you, Brian. Look, tell us, who was Oscar J. Dunn?
1: Oscar J. Dunn was born a slave in the city of New Orleans. And he had a number of fortunate turns of events. Um, the most important of which was the fact that a, a man, a free man of color from Virginia uh would come and fall in love with his mother uh, that free man of color uh, came to New Orleans from Petersburg, Virginia, to build the American theater and was uh, the stage carpenter. He built the sets for the first American theater in the city, run by a uh, theater impresario by the name of uh, J. Henry Caldwell. Um, he was able to eke out a pretty good living for himself. And when he falls in love with this... Uh, this slave and has a daughter by her, he decides that he's going to buy the entire family out of bondage and he negotiates the purchase of all three of them. And this opens the world up to done. In fact, uh, if you look at slave documents, what you'll note is slaves generally only had one name. They would, they just had first name and the first sort of hurdle that Dunn has is, okay, what am I going to call myself? And he decides to adopt the name of his stepfather, James Dunn, and making that his complete name, Oscar James Dunn. And he's sent to school. That's the next big achievement that he has. And it's at school that he falls in love with reading, and he falls in love uh, with the, the concept of learning.
0: Was that typical at the time, that he, he would...
1: Only, in, the and not in the city of New Orleans, only free people of color could be educated. So mm-hmm. as a slave, it would have been impossible for mm-hmm. him to receive education. Um, but at that point, there was very few professional options for uh, men of color in the United States, unless they went to Europe to train. Uh, so he becomes an artisan. Much the same way that his, uh, stepfather had been an artisan and he becomes a master plasterer and he begins to apprentice as a plasterer under a few gentlemen. It's while he's apprenticing under these plasters that he learns about music. Uh, he, he has a huge dispute with them and he leaves and, uh, he becomes a music teacher for a while. Uh, then, the war comes, mm-hmm. and there were two big institutions that shaped his life. One was the African Methodist Episcopal Church, and the other was the Prince Hall Mason uh, Mason Lodges. And it's within those two institutions that he learns about leadership, and he learns about what it what it means to be a leader of the people. Um, New Orleans is very, very diverse at this time. They're mm-hmm. French. Speakers, they're uh, English speakers. They are, are um, Anglo-Africans Anglo that have come over from the Eastern seaboard. They're Caribbean Africans that have come in from the islands in South, uh, in Latin America, in Mexico. And what Dunn has to do after the war is learn to la- navigate and learn to get all of these people who have very, very different opinions of what freedom are, to work together and to work collectively and collaboratively. And what he does is create the first African-American political machine in our nation. And he is at the helm of it. And one of the funniest things about the whole tale is one of the first things that they try to do when they rewrite the history after Reconstruction ends is make him into a periphery figure. You make him seem as though, well, he was a puppet for white men, and white men actually controlled what he said and did. Um, But nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, he was the leader of that that faction, and he commanded the respect of all the people, black or white, that were part of that faction. So it's it's amazing when we look at who he was as a figure.
0: Can I jump in here for a second because I do want to get back. I mean, one of the things that comes out of the book is, uh, his character and, uh, the respect and integrity that he generated in the community. And as you said, even among his opponents, um, could you sketch in a little bit of indeed what he and the black and, and, and just free community was, was facing from and I, and I guess we have to, we should also outline the political adversaries, the Democratic and the Republican parties of that time, uh, were pretty much the, the reverse of the characters that we take, uh, give them today.
1: Well, immediately following the war, he is part of a group called the Friends of Universal Suffrage. Mm-hmm. Friends of Universal Suffrage will send delegates to, uh, DC to try to meet with Abraham Lincoln to convince Abraham Lincoln that he should give Uh, black people, at least some black people, the right to vote in the city of New Orleans. Um, Abraham Lincoln seems receptive to this, and we know that he's receptive to this because he mentions uh, free black people in New Orleans in the very last speech he gives. But after his assassination, things begin to go backwards because Andrew Johnson was at heart himself a slave owner and a southerner. He wants the status quo to return to one of slavery and oppression for blacks. This is the atmosphere which Dunn finds himself in, and the two there are two riots that take place in the summer of 1866. One takes place in uh, Memphis, and the other takes place in New Orleans. That make Congress consider the occupation of the South to actually put troops in the South and keep them there and have these governors uh replaced with generals and then have hand selected people actually run the municipal governments within the states and the gubernatorial governance within these states. And it's under that atmosphere of direct federal control that Dunn first gets his opportunity to govern. And he's, uh, picked by Philip Sheridan to be uh, one of the aldermen. He becomes uh, a court reporter, uh, a recorder of the the second municipal district, which is uh, a judicial capacity. So he becomes the first person to serve as a judge in the state who's African-American. And then in 1868, um, he, when African-Americans are given the right to vote there, he is nominated. And he doesn't want to be mm-hmm. Lieutenant Governor. He wants to go back to the job that he had. Uh, but his wife and another politician will urge him to go ahead and take on this task.
0: Which, uh, and I, I, I want, I want you to talk a little bit more about this. And then I want to shift the to bearing a little bit, but I also, obviously we, we need you to outline his relationship with the governor at the time, what Henry Clay Warmoth. Uh, and, uh, well, 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 you can sketch that in and we'll return to this story too.
1: Henry Clay Wormuth, uh, had been, uh, a military officer who had been, uh, kicked out of the military by the man who would become president, uh, Ulysses S. Grant, uh, for cowardice, believe it or not. And, uh. Warmoth will go to Abraham Lincoln and ask him to reinstate him and give him an honorable discharge. After that, he'll go to Texas and serve as a judge, where he was run away when there's all sorts of cotton scandals, missing cotton that comes up and people selling cotton on on these underground um, black markets. And that's how he finds himself in New Orleans. And he is an extremely young man at the time. And he calls upon Dunn, who is this rising star politically and the head of the universal suffrage movement. And it's while calling on Dunn that Dunn introduces him to all the players that are in positions of power in the state. And Dunn is convinced that in order for them to get control of the state, what they have to do is align themselves with white men who are like-minded and who will work with them because he doesn't believe that uh white men will trust blacks to govern themselves so he brings uh Ormuth into this faction and um he sort of brings the devil into into the mix uh later on in his life uh, before he dies, he says the one thing that he regrets in his life was bringing Warmoth into, uh, the company of the universe, Friends of Universal Suffrage.
0: So, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop you right there. We're gonna return to this though, cause it I, uh, the story of his life is just remarkable. But Barrington, and then Nick, maybe you can join in here too. Let, can you talk about how you worked, uh, to bring this story, the visual life. Um, I mean, th- th- your work, it uh, it you it goes from these very rich portraits and landscapes. I mean, some of the the, the work you've done that uh, showed the cityscapes are great. But then you also essentially have action sequences. Once again, as uh, Brian said, there are heartbreaking massacres of black voters. Um, there are right-wing militias there um, the 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 stories of the police the competing police departments uh, even an integrated police department i mean there's so many things going on in this story that from a contemporary uh point uh you would not really expect to see um so uh, uh t- tell us more about what you had to do to bring the story visually to life
2: well, I think the, the story, I'm very visual and in, in my, can you hear me well?
0: Yes. In, yes.
2: In my head, the story pops up and it, it almost told itself. And I was really fortunate to have Brian pull out moments that were really important. Um, but then Nick, when I went down again and I have this love affair with New Orleans for, um many reasons we took a walk around and we sat in the places that um Oscar Dunn sat in and the church that he was in We went to the um to where he was buried and we talked and it all sunk into me, and I got a sense of the musicality of his story, the operatic nature, and I could see things in movements, so there are times where there were really romantic moments with himself and his wife and his family or long walks where he's being contemplative and then there are times where it's like mm, this story's pivoting and it's like kind of the B-roll that cut scene in a movie where it's about twirly mustache warmth, yeah. right and you know and I tried to bring for the sake of getting the work done and getting it out in an efficient way um the, the energy that whatever the scene needed, uh, but Nick was really great about like, yeah, no, 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 no. This is, we got to be more fastidious and this people really know the city and they, these up and I'm really respectful of the fact that this is Brian's ancestor. So I want to mm-hmm. render things the way they needed to be rendered. Um, but also keep the story moving because we, we know in comics. It's about pacing and it's about telling the whole story and not just a moment. So trying to find that balance. But Nick was really generous and Brian was really generous and all the research that was available from the um collection was really a godsend.
0: Uh, yeah, and I want to add something. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, sure. You know, and I
3: really appreciate Barrington's flexibility because um You know, I think John Jennings probably gave him the advice that, you know, this is a history book and this is a little different than your typical graphic graphic novel because, you know, historians were, you know, we don't give him a broad brush necessarily to paint with. We have a lot of specific visual references and historical details that, you know, all of these little fine details have a reference point. And so... Barrington had to strike this careful balance between like his creative liberty in terms of the mood and the flow and the rhythm and the action and very finite points like photographs of people or images that we have of street scenes or congressional testimony that gives, you know, the details of this riot that took place. You know, we had all of this studded in our script and we created this visual database for him to reference. And it was just a lot of, back and forth and feeling it out but you know he you know he i threw we threw a lot at him and he did a great job interpreting it and still being able to put his signature on all of this stuff
0: Mm -hmm. um okay let's jump back to uh to brian uh let's see where did we leave off this is him accepting uh the uh nomination for lieutenant governor
1: so can you pick up the story there Sure. Uh, he takes, he accepts the nomination for lieutenant governor, um, reluctantly. Mm-hmm. And t- uh, he realizes if he does not take on the task, then he is leaving the fate to the fate of all African Americans to, uh, some seedy people. And he decides to take on this task. And the first thing they do is begin putting into law. Um, into state law, the thir- the embodiment of the 13th and 14th Amendments. And one of the first bills that they want to pass is a civil rights bill ah. that's known as the Isabel Bill in the state. Uh, and the very first civil rights bill that they pass, the governor who they had hand-selected vetoes it Yeah, and tells them, I don't think you guys are ready for this. Dunn knew right then and there, we got to get rid of this guy. And a schism takes place inside of the Republican Party. And two factions emerge. The radical faction led by Dunn versus the conservative faction, which would be led by Warmoth. And Dunn has a long way to go because he has to win over uh, not just the former slaves that are already in his camp, but he has to win over some Democrats in order for him uh, to succeed in, uh, his victory to unseat governor, governor Warmoth.
0: And the Democrats we're talking about here, they're out, they're straight up white supremacists. They're, they're, they're ex-confederates. They're, they're, they're not about civil rights. For yeah, they, they,
1: <laughs> they, they want for to bring back supremacy. slavery, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah they right. want
0: slavery back. Yeah. Uh,
1: so. It's in that climate that we find, uh, done as the hero who's fighting warmth every step of the way. And he's having to do it using all sorts of unconventional, uh, methods. Um, one of the big things that he, he's doing are test cases and test cases. One of the biggest test cases that he personally gets involved with is his trip to Washington, D.C. Um, and he does that really to show people. That, uh, discrimination is everywhere in this country.
0: That white- so This he, is, this is after the, the election of, uh, uh, U.S. Grant, yes?
1: Yes, this is after, he, he's on his way there for the inauguration of mm-hmm. Grant. So he's there to meet Grant right after he's inaugurated. And he takes a trip, and there, there are no east-west railroads in the south at that point. So you have to go north.
0: Yes. He's, and it's a hellish trip.
1: Yeah, he goes to pick up a first-class ticket. Knowing quite well that Warmus, um, that PGT Beauregard, Pierre uh, Gustave Toutat Beauregard, um, the man who had fi- fired the first shots of the Civil War at Fort Sumter, was the president of the railroad. And he realized that he would turn him away and tell him no, but he purchases the first class ticket. Um, really to show people the type of discrimination that was taking place. And, in Louisiana and throughout the South. And he takes that rare railroad ride all the way up to Lexington. And when he gets off there, um, when it's off the train there, he tries to take a carriage and he's told, no, no, you can't, you can't, even if you have a first class class ticket, we're not going to let you w- ride with white people. Yeah. So he hires his own carriage, you know, that, that he totally, he's the only passenger here. And he and Lynch are the only passengers in the carriage and he makes his way up to ohio and then he makes his way to washington dc and what the trip to washington dc shows us is in the heart of democracy he's facing uh racism he's yeah. going head to head with white supremacists in the heart of democracy yes, yeah.
0: so uh, uh, it's uh, after the 1868 presidential election um, uh, Oscar J. Dunn, Lieutenant Governor of Louisiana, has to take a Jim Crow train uh, from uh, New Orleans to Washington, D.C. What and everything from train accommodations to hotels to his reception in Congress is torn by the politics of the period and the racial politics of the period. Tell us more.
1: Yeah, what, what I thought was interesting, sort of an interesting parallel, um, was the opposition by the delegation really from Kentucky. And, you know, I keep thinking about Kentucky now, <laughs> Mitch McConnell and, and that crew. And, yeah. you know, almost the same thing, you know, this, this very strong opposition. Uh, is met by uh, some delegates, uh, particularly some Confederates and some Republican delegates, who really don't want an African American dignitary honored on the floor of the Senate. And he, he, despite what they feel, uh, he's brought out, and you know they're they're rounding r- applause for him. And then later that beats mm-hmm. with Grant. And, uh, he begins to ask Grant to nominate certain people to different positions. And he and Grant develop a relationship. He'll, he'll, uh, uh, visit Grant, uh, once, one more time before he dies. Uh, but, uh, there are a number of reasons I believe that he would have trusted, uh, done far more than he would have trusted Wormuth. First, hmm he had discharged Wormuth for cowardice.
0: Yes, yeah. He had, he had a history with him.
1: <laughs> exactly. Uh, at the top of that list, it's that. But then Dunn has a character and has developed a reputation throughout the city as being this very level-headed fair. Um And one of the things that's really sort of divisive in the city of New Orleans is religion. So he knows that he really can't Specifically take the side of a religion So what he does is espouses These qualities that are Universal to good people Across all religions Across Protestantism and across uh, Catholicism And this notion of integrity um, This notion of Fair-handed dealing This notion of being uh, Unimpeachable uh, In a very corrupt
0: government Situation at the time uh, as, uh, I learned from your book.
1: Oh yeah. Bribes, <laughs> bribes flying left and right. And he, pu- he publicly comes out when he's offered a, a, an enormous bribe by a railroad. He publicly comes out and calls out, uh, the railroad delegation for offering him the money and he refuses to take the money. And that will make him one of the, uh, in fact, he goes down in history as Probably one of its uh, the the state's most honest uh, governors ever. Hmm. So all of these wonderful things, and we don't remember him. And we don't. It's amazing.
0: Tell us a little bit more. He worked uh, for school integration, and we're talking in post Civil War New Orleans. I mean, and now of course it was fought at every step. But I think in the book you say something. Over a thousand black kids were in an integrated school situation well, after the Civil he, War he in u-
1: He uses his own stuff. Step- he he's married in 1866 and he uses his own children, his stepchildren to integrate the public schools because he realizes black families are going to fear sending their kids there. But he says, I'm going to set the example. I'll send my, my own children there. And if if I if you know if I think highly as highly to send my own children there, then you guys it's okay for you guys to send your children to these public schools also. And part of his big dream was that um, a transformation in spirits would take place inside of schools, mm-hmm. that children would grow up together, and you know racism would sort of vanish because. The illusions that had been created by the, these voids, by uh, segregation um, and keeping uh, blacks apart from whites, uh, gave an air of superiority to white. Mm-hmm. But that illusion would disappear, he maintained, if children went to school together and they mm-hmm. together and they saw each other and they wor- worked with each other. They realized that blacks, some blacks, are are, are smarter than whites and some whites. Uh, are kinder than, you know, uh, this person, are hardworking. And what they would see is that people are all the same. Uh You can imagine how this was met by the democratic portions of the city. What they began doing was, in mass withdrawing all of their children out. Sounds and- familiar. Yeah, <laughs> 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 exactly. Once again, a timely piece. Uh, they began resegregating by forming parochial schools. And even today in the city of New Orleans, when we look at the number of parochial schools in comparison to other southern cities, it's enormous. And most of them are born out of this, uh, the struggle that took place in reconstruction.
0: Mm-hmm. So, um. Hi I may piggyback. Back. Yes, please, go right ahead. Yeah, I just and I suppose you know, i, I think, neglecting you and Barrett to Go on.
3: <laughs> no, no, I just, something I really appreciate that Brian kind of draws out in Oscar Dunn's story is this, how important education was to him and, and whether it was something that he just cherished because he w- had the rare opportunity to get an education when he was younger. But when he first joined the, um, the Council of Aldermen in, in 1867, um, he was the one who initiated a bill at that time to in- initiate the first public schools in the state, which would be integrated, and the bill failed at the time. But that language ended up going into the state constitution of 1868, and it took them three years and, and a lot of um, wrangling in the courts before, as Brian said, in January of 1871, Dunn's. Uh, stepchildren were in that first class, uh, of kids who were integrating schools. And and for, you know, three or four years there, there were thousands of children attending integrated schools in New Orleans. And this is a part of, you know, when we talk about the civil rights movement and we talk about Ruby Bridges here, uh, in New Orleans, people don't even mention that this happened in 1871 and was a success until the downfall of, you know, the radical government here and that was had so much to do with Oscar Dunn's passion for the issue.
0: So look we we I we're, I'm, we're, we're running out of time here but I would love Brian to talk us a little bit more about Dunn's time as acting governor. This seems to be where the the conflicts between him and Warmuth really you um, know, peaked in, in one way uh, and and uh, and it, maybe a little bit about obviously his death, which seems to have questions about it.
1: Warmoth was uh, visiting a ship, a steamboat that was named after him. And he puts his foot on a gear and his foot is crushed. And Warmoth now has this decision, monumental decision to make because if he steps down then the man who had been his political rival is thrust into the governor's office. So he makes the decision that he's going to um, actually not be at the office and get his secretary to sneak papers to him so he can run the state while incapacitated. And uh, Dunn gets wind of the plan, and Dunn has a number of decisions to make and one of those decisions is okay when when do i step in and when do we uh take over the state what do i do when when i take over the state and uh a lot of people want him to do that by this point Warmoth has uh been corrupting the state in in regards to taking bribes he's been pl- placing his people into positions of power and uh, done when he gets wind of Warman's accident, he waits a little while. Uh, and, uh, a, uh, I'm trying to remember who the individual is, but they, ask, someone needs to take a leave of absence and the governor has to approve it and the governor's not there. And he uses that as the opportunity to get a locksmith to pick open the lock of the governor's office <laughs> so he can cont- take control of the governmental office. Um, the, go- the private secretary of Warmoth, uh, catches the locksmith on his knees, opening the office and rushes in, grabs all of the, the records that he can so they don't fall into Dunn's uh, possession and then skirts off to, uh, a neighboring resort on the coast, a resort sort of town on the coast where Wormuth had been recuperating. And once Dunn is in that acting governor's position, he begins filling, you know, very quickly, filling all these uh, empty cabinet positions, all these empty uh, appointed positions that he can uh, fill up. And uh, there are a number of situations that Dunn is put in, and one is the execution of the two foreign nationals that have killed a melee uh, 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 an Asian sailor is in town and he's killed by two Europeans and Dunn has a decision and everybody puts this weight on Dunn to, um, turn these two Europeans over to their own, uh, uh, countries and let them deal with them. But Dunn realizes they're just going to let him go. If, if, you know, they're not, they're never going to kill two white men for killing. An Asian sailor, uh, so the courts convict the two men here, um, to and sentence them to death by hanging. And what uh, what the embassies and uh, councils try to do is get done to supersede uh, this uh, this court judgment. And he refuses to do so. He's like, you know, if I was a white man, you know you know, I could do whatever I really wanted to do. Yeah. Being a black man, you know, there'd be no end of yeah. you know, uh pressure put on me if I let two people go. So, I mean, the court is ruled what it's ruled and the two men hang. Uh whites in the absence of Wormuth, while Gunn, Dunn was acting governor, maintained that he did a fantastic job. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people begin to say, well, you know, Maybe this might be a better way to go. <laughs> <laughs> These rumors start getting back to warm us. uh as he's recuperating. Uh, he realizes I better hurry up and get back to the <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he shows up on crutches, uh, having been gone, uh, for some time. He shows up on crutches and he maintains that gov, that Dunn should have never been, uh, Acting governor, and that he wants to reverse everything that done is done, uh, including a done uh, done pardoned a police officer who was who had taken a gift from someone on his beat and had been sentenced to prison for that, and it was such a controversial case that the judge uh, wanted the the police officer to get a pardon. The prosecutor wanted the police officer to get a pardon. Everybody wanted the police officer to get a pardon. So, uh, Dunn pardons this police officer and the, the man is at home with his family and Warmoth has him rearrested, tells him go out, pick him up, put him back in jail. (laughs) So everything that, uh Done does is reversed in much the same way that everything that Obama had done, all the progressives are sort of overturned, uh, by, uh, you know, Trump as soon as he gets back into office.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, there are so many uh, correlations there. I mean, this is history at its best, which makes us recognize, you know, the antecedents to to the times we live in. So our time is running down. I, I do want you to get into a little bit. Um uh, of what, after the 1872 election, the end of reconstruction, uh, you know, the challenge to any, any progressive stuff that was going on. Um uh, can you tell us a little bit, uh, about the, the last days of, uh, Oscar Dunn? The
1: last days of Oscar Dunn, are very, very interesting um, for two reasons. First, Don, um is publicly out there working, and he's going to dinners, he's giving speeches, he's talking in churches. Um, he seems to know that his days are marked in much the same way that Malcolm X and Martin Luther King knew beforehand, you know, seem to prophesize their own uh I may not get to the promised land with you. And Dunn does a speech very much like that. I may not make it to the promised land Mm -hmm. with you. Um, Warmoth is done. He knows his days are numbered. He knows that he's going to be impeached. He's just waiting for it to happen. And it's on really the eve of this happening that Dunn becomes violently ill. And people begin to speculate, okay, why is he ill now? People begin to say, well, I know exactly when he was poisoned. He was poisoned at this particular mm-hmm. Um Others maintain that uh, voodoo practitioners have put a spell on him. It's and New Orleans.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's New Orleans, baby. <laughs> Anything possible. <laughs> exactly. But... He gets very violently ill and he dies quickly. And the family does not have an autopsy. The family opts mm-hmm. not to an autopsy, uh, which also left an air of suspicion around the death. Um, a, a funeral is planned for him. The city goes into mourning. Uh, all of the state buildings are closed. The flags are put at half mass and people come to celebrate Dunn's life and him as a symbol by the tens of thousands. Mm-hmm. In fact, you know, it's it's referred to as one of the largest funerals in the history of the city. Um, there are bands, all of the military units, uh, police units, fraternal organizations, benevolent organizations, all in their regalia. Um go to this procession. And they say that the procession was so long. I don't know if you've ever been to new Orleans. His house was prominently at the foot of canal. And it was at canal and Claiborne Avenue.
0: Mm.
1: It said that when the, the line, the procession began, uh, there were still people when it rounded the foot of Canal Street and made its way to the cemetery, there were still people lined up at his house to start the procession. Yeah. So we're, we're talking like well over a mile yeah. you know, yeah. uh, of streets clogged with people, uh, wanting to, uh, you know, bid farewell to this leader, um, who was not, not just a local figure but a national figure mm. and a figure that was such a model of what we could do at our best that he had to be erased. Mm. He had to be erased from history mm. because how can you write that uh, black people need to be slaves, black people need to be watched, black people need to follow orders. When you have someone as capable as done as an example, which
0: brings us to the title of the book. Right. Can you tell us why it's called Monumental?
1: Yes. Uh, beginning in 1872, there's discussion of what to do about Dunn's legacy, and, and in 1872-1873, a Monument Association will be approved by the legislature, and some ten thousand dollars. Will be, uh, put aside for the erection of a monument in honor of Oscar James Dunn. However, uh, if you know anything about 1872 and 1873 reconstruction in Louisiana, those are extremely violent periods. Mm-hmm. We, the Colfax Massacre will happen there and we have the Battle of Liberty place happening uh, just after this period. So, Intensely violent shifts where Democrats are trying to take back control. And it's through this climate of division, uh, that the monument will never be built. So money's allocated, um, passed into law and no monument is ever erected in honor of this man.
0: Well, you, uh, you've taken up the, the challenge and actually created, all of you created a monument into it. And I, look i hope I hope I haven't neglected barrington uh I, I am curious maybe you guys can talk a little bit more about how you work together apparently zoom came in handy but i mean did you did you get together regularly to talk review the art i mean um all of this is for this kind of a book is kind of a really important step you you want to add anything barrington uh
2: just that um we were um Nick and I were in constant um conversation, um, we communicated through email and over, over the phone regularly. And I know that he was doing the same thing with Brian. Um, so props to Nick for being the intermediary and manager from this project. You know, um, the coach in all sports has the job of managing egos and, um, the divas. And, you know, if I, if (laughs) I involved here. Thanks, Coach. Uh, <laughs> well, so, yeah, What I, what I can
1: say much. is that Nick uh, Barrington's a hundred percent right. Nick did take on the huge task of sort of managing uh, all sides and coordinating um, what was in the manuscript, what um, was in the artwork, and what I've loved about Barrington's artwork is it's lyrical, it's flowing, it shows motion. And as you point out, some of those, 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 uh, landscapes of the city.
0: Yeah.
1: So beautiful. beautiful. I've, there's one particular picture I want so badly for my home. You know, I need a huge one done so I can hang it at my home. Uh, they're <laughs> beautiful, And, uh, I think, you know, it's, it's really magical how it came together. I'm surprised that we were able to do it at the distance that we were, um, but I guess one of the testaments to, to show was the amount of time it took to do. It, it really was something um, that was a labor of love.
0: How long have you been working on yeah. the book? How long is it? We, you know, we
3: started in earnest putting the book together in 2018. So it's been about three years, but obviously Brian's research went back decades. And, and I'd be remiss if I didn't shout out our designer, Tana Komen, who took all of the work. Um, so, you know, especially in the last year of production where, you know, Barrington's in Boston doing the art, Brian's in Arkansas working with me on the language. And I'm here in New Orleans, Tana's here in New Orleans, and we did a lot of the last push during the early days of the pandemic. And so we were coordinating, you know, in three different states, three different cities to, to bring it all together. But it, it took, you know, probably about three years start to finish to make the book, but it's all built upon years and years of of work by
0: Brian. And and I I want to reiterate it again that what a complete package it is. I mean the the supplementary materials at the end, the timeline, uh and as well as uh uh what I found very interesting, uh the essay about where this book fits in the in the ongoing I guess discussion among historians about reconstruction, the nature of it. I wasn't I mean I was sort of aware of of course how Reconstruction uh, uh, is viewed by historians. Uh, and, of course, what I found interesting in one of your essays, uh, as I always do, particularly writing about comics, how pop culture figures in creating historical mythology. And you talk a little bit about birth of a nation and how it's influenced our views or some people's views of Reconstruction. And um, this whole notion that somehow or other, you know, uh, malfeasant uh, freed slaves, ruined it all. Uh, instead of a concerted effort by white supremacists to rest back and return us to slavery. So, um, uh, yeah, you, you can add anything to that. I talk too much sometimes. There's <laughs> a you lot to talk about. Remember that
1: at, at the end of, uh, Birth of a Nation, the Klan ends up the heroes. So. Yeah.
0: So there you go.
1: So there's that. Yeah.
0: Um. But, but yeah but, uh, uh, well, look, you've created a wonderful antidote and I, and, and no doubt this will enlarge the discussion about reconstruction. Let me ask, what's, what's in store to promote the book, Nick? Are, is, do you have any other plans? Is there something going on? Uh, yeah, and- um,
3: Yeah, we, um, as a matter of fact, we are launching this book, um, uh, via a virtual symposium where uh the museum of the historic new orleans collection is actually having a three-day event um it's titled uh recovered voices black activism and new orleans from reconstruction to the present day and we'll have panels and we'll of course be talking about monumental also be talking about our fatima Sheikh's book about economy hall which is just launching as well um afroqueral poetry by clint bruce so um you can go to hnoc.org to learn more about the symposium, and you'll get to hear more from all three of us uh, at event. It'll be March 5th through the 7th, um, and it's all online.
0: All right. Look, this is great. Well, I, I, I I'm going to let you get this book out, but hopefully there'll be more works of serious graphic nonfiction coming out of of uh, all of you in the future. We can we can certainly use them. Look, uh, I want to thank you all. Uh, congratulations on the book. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to do my best to hype it. Uh, I think it's an exciting event. Um, thanks to all of you for being on more to come.
2: Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Calvin. Thanks, Calvin. All right. Take care. All right. Take care. Yeah. Bye. See you guys. All right. Bye everybody. Bye.